0: Father, I ask the blessing of your Spirit on the teaching of your Word. We pray the truth that comes by your Spirit. And the, uh, Father, the, the humility on our part to recognize when we misunderstand something or, Lord, when I misteach something, I just pray that you'd make things clear to us and that we wouldn't miss what you're speaking to our hearts. The greater issue, Lord, is not the Word on the page, but it's Your Word written in our hearts. It's it's how You continue to lead us in relationship with You. And long after our physical, tangible Bibles have been set aside and we are before You in eternity, we will still hang on Your every single Word. For we find strength, Lord, in Your Word and peace and joy and truth and righteousness and all that is good. All that is good in the Word of God and fleshed in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, speak to us tonight and give us insight and wisdom and understanding that we might do your bidding and be about your business in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of verses in Daniel chapter 10 before we get to 11 that I think are preparatory for 11 first one is verse 12 of Daniel chapter 10. I remind you, the angel speaking to Daniel said, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. And so I encourage you that let's come to this passage, this chapter tonight, humbling ourselves and seeking understanding. And that's how I had to approach it. Um, I've taught through Daniel 11 before. And came back to it again and realized some things that I misunderstood the first time around. And I may even misunderstand some things this time around. I also want to say to you all that be aware that there are people who are absolutely in love with Jesus. Who see some things out of this chapter differently than I do. And while they may be wrong, they are still loved. <laughs> uh, no, there are, there are things that are worth saying standing on, uh, fall on your sword issues, doctrinal truths like the blood of Christ, uh, redemption by virtue of the cross, the grace of God, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the the work that God does in our lives, the the relationship He's called us to. There are specific fundamental truths of Scripture. And and then there are also things where we say we're not exactly sure what, what that means. And we can say, well, this is what it might mean, or this is what I believe it means, but I, I like to come back to Scripture every time with a fresh perspective, a humble perspective that says, I don't know it all. God knows it all. Jesus speaks absolute truth, and His Word is truth, but sometimes we miss some things. So we come at, at this tonight with humble hearts seeking understanding. The second thing, though, note in verse 14, because there are three features of Daniel 11 that the angel explains to us in Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. Kind of an outline, if you will. He says, I have come to give you an understanding of number one, what will happen to your people, number two, in the latter days, for the vision pertains, number three, to the days yet future. So, th- three things to understand as we open Daniel 11 is the vision concerns Israel. He says, This is about your people. This is for your people. He's talking to Daniel, a Jew. So this is a vision concerning Israel's future. And we've got to make sure we're clear on that. Secondly, the vision carries on to the latter days. So this is going to be a vision that spans a great expanse of time and history. And even will carry on. Thirdly, it culminates in the days yet future. So it will go beyond us tonight. Okay? It's for Israel. It carries on to the latter days of Israel, and it will go on beyond us even here tonight, culminating in the final future years. Okay, that's our outline. That's what we're going to take as kind of our, our focus as we go through Daniel chapter 11. Verse 1, Daniel chapter 11, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now that's not when Daniel 11 is happening. This is the angel talking about what he did in the first year of Darius the Mede, which would be back in 539 BC. But he says, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him, and now I will tell you the truth. Now is 536 BC. We know that because when he came to Daniel uh, in chapter 10, it says, in the third year of Cyrus. Okay? So now it's the third year of Cyrus. I want to make sure you're with me, because we have a ways to go tonight. We're in the third year of Cyrus, as Daniel chapter 11 begins, but the angel starts by referencing the first year of Cyrus, or goes back, actually, to the first year of Darius 539, three years prior. And I think that's interesting. He says, in the first year of Darius, three years ago, as he hearkens back, he says, I I was sent to be an encouragement and a protection for him. For Darius, a pagan. So here's another couple of things you can note about angels. As God sends angels to do His bidding, we talked about several things on Sunday that angels do. Well, angels apparently are also encouragers and protectors. And not just for believers. Sometimes God, by His determination, by His will, says, I need someone looking after that guy. And by the way, those of you who came to faith later in your lives... I think God did that for you long before you ever believed in Jesus because He knew you were going to. He kept you for the day of salvation that would come when you finally got your head screwed on straight, which happened to all of us. Some of us earlier than others, but God keeps us. He protects us. He encourages us along the way. Even when we are outside of belief, it's pretty remarkable. This Darius is not a believer. But the angels, an encourager and a protector for him. By the way, this also might be another hint of the angelic identity of the messenger here in Daniel ten, eleven, and twelve, because Gabriel came to Daniel that same year, the first year of Darius. Daniel chapter nine. That's Gabriel on the scene. So perhaps Gabriel was already on the scene dealing with Darius when when God said, an need you to answer Daniel's prayer." So maybe the three minute prayer it wasn't. Gabriel coming all the way from heaven to Daniel, but he was just coming from the palace, which would be a little easier, you know, three minutes, he just had to grab a cab, and he was there. We don't know, again, who the angel is here in Daniel 10, 11, and 12. But perhaps Gabriel, because of the connection with that particular year. Speaking of Daniel 9, we got to review it. Well, it was two Wednesdays ago. But we need to review it because it goes hand in hand with Daniel chapter 11. These are two chapters that need to be taken together, kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They work very well together. Chocolate and peanut butter also. I could go off on all kinds of foods that I no longer am allowed to eat. But these two go together. Daniel 9, Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 9. A quick uh, recount of this thing. Seven sevens plus 62 sevens plus one seven equals a total of seventy. Sevens. Okay? Seventy units of seven. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 talks about the 77s. And we talked about that word seven is Shabuah in the Hebrew. And it's seven units. So seventy units of seven, making four hundred and ninety. Seventy units of seven years each. Alright, seven sevens plus 62 sevens plus one seven equals 70 units of seven, 490 years. We talked about how I believe that began on March 14th, 445 B.C. With the decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. And when he decreed that, and there are four decrees we talked about in Scripture four decrees, people have said, well maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one. The only one that is a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem is the one by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in 445. That's the only one that fits the prophecy. So taking it from there and going 490 years, the 490 year clock started ticking on 445 BC. 49 years later, the first seven sevens were fulfilled. 7 times 7 is 49, right? The restoration of Jerusalem was completed 49 years in. Another 434 years after that, the next 62 sevens, or Shabuah, were fulfilled. Messiah the Prince enters into Jerusalem. Within a week of His entrance, He is crucified. Just as Daniel prophesied, Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. Now the reason why Daniel 9 goes with Daniel 11 is the first 35 verses of Daniel 11 deal with that entire time frame. Okay Those 69 weeks or sevens, those 69 uh, units of seven years each, fulfilled, talked about in the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. That leaves us with one Shabuah left, one unit of seven, seven years. Unaccounted for, unfulfilled, it's never happened. Verses 36-41 through of Daniel chapter 11, deal with the final week. Deal with the last seven. And we'll come to that this evening. So again, 69 of the 77's were fulfilled right on schedule, perfectly as God prophesied they would be, but with the rejection of Messiah, the clock stopped. Stops ticking. Why? Because once Israel rejects Messiah, God says, alright Israel, I'm going to set you aside for another time. We're going to come back to that final seven year period later on, because that has to do with you, but you've now rejected my offer of salvation, so I'm going to work on the Gentile world, and thus the times of the Gentiles, which we are continuing to be in right now. The clock won't start ticking again, until what happens? Covenant signed. Covenant signed. The covenant is signed by Antichrist and Israel. And that starts the clock ticking. And the final seven years will take place right after that. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Book of Revelation. 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But here's how Daniel 9 and 11 go together. Chapter 9 is like the skeletal structure, chapter 11 is the guts. Okay? God first gives the outline in Daniel chapter 9, the structure on which everything else will hang. And then He brings the prophecy. And it's full and it's rich. And there's a lot in here to think through as we go forward. Why don't you, Rick? I will. In Daniel 11, God fleshes out the 77s. So much so that some deny that this is prophetic at all. And we began talking about this when we started off in Daniel chapter 1. There are plenty of critics with Daniel. In fact, it is the most criticized Hebrew book in the entire Bible. This is the one the critics attack the most vehemently and go after the worst. It's just its too perfect. It's too historically accurate. So it can't possibly be legitimate, they would say. Why would they say that? Because they reject any notion of supernatural revelation. The problem is if you reject supernatural revelation, you might as well close up your Bible altogether because you reject the Word of God. The whole Word came supernaturally. The whole thing is supernaturally revealed. This is not a book of history. History proves this book time and time again to be legitimate and true, but God didn't set out to write a history textbook for a high school class. He set out to reveal His intentions and His purposes to mankind. That we might come to understand him and see his glory. So we're not holding a history book here. And the thing is, if you come to this book with the preconceived notion that there is no supernatural revelation, you got a big problem with the book of Daniel. Because this book, written in the mid-500s BC, about things that happened specifically over the next five, six, seven hundred years, mind-blowing. Incredible. They say it's too historically accurate. It had to be written after the fact. The prophetic angle is just a fraud. The pseudo-Daniel who wrote this threw in the word prophecy here and there to try and make it seem like it's more legitimate than it really was. My friends, you know this. The Lord is the revealer of mysteries. The Lord is the bringer of revelation. He fleshes out prophecy over history to give us understanding. And at the same time, and it's marvelous, He continues to ask us for faith. Now, ask yourself, how would you do that? How would you bring revelation and explanation to people at the same time developing their faith? You got to do both. God wants us to have faith in Him and to trust Him, but He also wants to explain Himself to us. How do you do both? And God has done it perfectly. That's the thing I love about the Word of God. He reveals just enough to bring me to faith. And then the more I believe, the more He reveals, and the more I can see and understand in the same Word that I didn't understand before. Anyone else have that experience in your life? That the further down the line you go in your faith with the Lord... And in trusting him, the more his word begins to make sense. Things you read once that you went, I don't know what that is, you begin to read again, and with eyes of faith go, Oh! You know? I still feel like a kindergartner, you know, in graduate school with this book. And yet he reveals things by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Faith. Come to Me in faith. I want you to trust Me and believe Me. I'm going to give you just enough. And then I want you to trust Me. So why do some look for ways to deny this as prophecy? And I will give you two, not human motives, I will give you two diabolical motives. There are two demonic reasons, probably more, for why people would come at this book so negatively and deny supernatural revelation. Number one, to deny faith. Simply to deny faith. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You get the, the, the contrast there? The God of this world, Satan, wants to blind you. The God of all truth, our Creator, wants to bring us to the light. The light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But those who deny this book want to deny faith. Satan wants to deny the development of faith in your life, in my life. But there's another diabolical motive here. And that is to deny the future. Deny the future. The devil does not want the world ready. He wants everybody to go down in the flood. He wants everybody to be burned up in Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't want people to know what's coming. And Jesus said, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. They're not going to realize what was happening until it's too late. It's going to be like it was, he says in the book of Luke, in the days of Lot. When the whole town was so corrupt, they had no idea what was about to happen. See, that's what the God of this world does. He denies faith and he denies the future. Things are going to go on just as they always have. Don't worry about the future. It's all going to be fine. God brings everything into the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Isaiah 46, verse 9, he says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You know what that means? That means from the very beginning, God began telling us the end was coming. The earliest prophecy we have on record, the prophecies of Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam, he's talking about the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The beginning, the end from the beginning. Because God wants you to know the future. He wants you to be ready for the future. He wants you to look to the future not be all hung up in this life or in the past. And Jesus said in John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. One verse down, 44 to go. (laughs) Buckle up, because here we go for a ride. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Three more kings did arise after Darius. Okay, so following Darius, we had three more. uh, Cyrus... Cyrus is the current king, as this prophecy is being given, Daniel 10 through 12. Cyrus is king, it's the third year of Cyrus, right? So Cyrus is one, and then Cambyses would follow him, a Persian king, and then another Darius, holding that title of Daryavesh, and finally, a fourth king comes along. The fourth king to arise is a king by the name of Xerxes. Begins with an X. Xerxes. Now, I will mention history tells of another Persian king who reigned less than a year, but he was discovered to be an imposter. His name was Smeagol. No, (laughs) Smyrdas. I always confuse the two. His name was Smyrdas. And Smyrdas was an imposter. He was not a legitimate king in Persia. He tried to rise up, tried to reign less than a year. He was put out. He doesn't rank at all on the list, so the Lord doesn't even recognize him. So, It's only worth mentioning just because he has a funny name King Xerxes is the fourth one King Xerxes from 485 to 465 so by the second verse we're already down to 485 to 465 BC King Xerxes the fourth king this is not by the way Artaxerxes so don't confuse the two the Artaxerxes who signs the decree that starts the 490 years rolling he signed that decree in 445 this is 40 years earlier 30 to 40 years prior to that, this Xerxes, the fourth king of Persia here that's being talked about in Daniel 11, is the last of the royal Persian line of the Xerxes. Now, by the way, I'm just going to tell you right now, the first 35 verses, I'm going to give you a ton of history, there's not going to be a quiz or a test, so just sit and listen, you don't have to take notes unless you really want to. Okay, because there's so many names and dates and all that, we're just going to kind of move through it. There's a reason for it, but I don't think you need to know the particulars unless you're just hungry to. But this Xerxes the last royal line, uh, royal Persian line of the Xerxes. In the Bible, he has another name, Ahazurus. And Ahasuerus was the king who famously took a young Jewish girl for his wife. Her name was? Esther. Esther. right. So the fourth king of Persia here in Daniel 11 is King Xerxes' husband to Esther in the book of Esther, the king who takes her. Persia, and the reason why it's mentioned here, as with everything else mentioned in this history, is the second nation to attempt Israel's annihilation. You remember the player? The guy's name was Haman. And Haman sought the annihilation of all the Jewish people. And if Esther hadn't been there for such a time as that, the Jewish people would have been annihilated back then. And throughout history, we've seen people rise up and try to annihilate Israel. And Persia is now the second kingdom to do it. The first was Babylon. And now Persia tries to do it. Well, Xerxes had it all, he also had some Greek issues. All right, the Bible tells us that he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now I need to go back and make a correction because I talked about the Battle of Thermopylae. Or Thermopolis, however you want to pronounce it. And I, and I missed a few things. I think I got something wrong. I want to clarify for you. Here's what happened. And this is correct history. I'm not a historian. I'm a Bible teacher. So, Xerxes amassed a huge army. And this huge, huge army he brought in to overthrow an alliance of Greek city-states. Okay, Those Greek city-states including the Spartans and the Thespians and the, and the Thebans. Okay? King Leonidas sent 300 Spartans, 700 Thespians, and 400 Thebans to Thermopylae to battle. You never send actors and actresses into battle. It's a bad idea. But he did. And this tiny band held off hundreds of thousands of Persian warriors that Xerxes sent to destroy them because he wanted to take Greece for himself. They held them off. Persia actually won the battle of Thermopylae, But they expended so much manpower and so much in the way of resources, they were devastated, and something else happened at that famous battle. A fuse was lit among the Greeks a century and a half roughly would go by and that fuse would just seethe until a mighty king rose up by the name of Alexander the Great. Then Alexander comes along and with his people says, we're going to get back at those Persians. We're going to take them out. And that's when Alexander strikes hard and fast and takes over and, and destroys Persia in short order. Verse 3 picks it up. And a mighty king, that's Alexander the Great now, will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases, which pretty much he could. He was the ruler of the world. But as soon as he has risen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others Besides them. So the mighty king Alexander the Great. He rose and he fell very quickly. His kingdom. We've talked about this. Got parceled out to the four points of the compass. What would be the center of the compass? Israel. Four points of the compass around Israel. Cassander goes west to Europe. Lysimachus goes east to Turkey. Those two don't concern us anymore. The two that continue to concern us now in Daniel chapter 11 are the Seleucids north in Syria and the Ptolemies south in Egypt. These two factions, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, now are going to feud over 400 years back and forth and back and forth. And guess who's right in the middle of it? Israel. So watch what happens. Verse 5. And then the king of the south will grow strong. That's Ptolemy II along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north. That's Antiochus II, not Antiochus Epiphanes, who we'll get to. This is another Antiochus. To the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But... She will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Can you imagine being Daniel writing this down? What? Huh? Here's what happened. These two verses are what you could call the story of two kings, two wives, and one big mess. Okay, In the Seleucid north, you've got Antiochus II. In the Egyptian south, Ptolemy II. And he had a daughter, and her name was Bernice. The two kings made a marital alliance. Okay, Ptolemy's daughter became, in the south, Ptolemy's daughter went up north, became Antiochus' wife in hopes of stemming this ongoing feud. We'll just marry her to him. It's one problem, though. Antiochus in the north was already married. So he said, no problem, I'll, I'll just put away my first wife. That, uh, his wife was Laodice, or Laodice, Laodice, Laodice I don't know. He, he put her aside and he took up with Bernice. So now he's got a new wife, dumped the first wife. But when Ptolemy down in the south died, Antiochus decided he wanted his first wife back. So Laodice, or Laodice, she consented coyly. She came back she poisoned Antiochus II, and then she called for the murder of Bernice and her little baby boy and all of her uh, attendants. You with me on this? This all happened in two verses. And then, down in the south, the Ptolemies back at the ranch were a little enraged about Bernice's murder, and verse 7 picks it up. One of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, but he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods, with their metal images and all their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. So... Bernice is murdered by Antiochus II's wife after he's been poisoned, right? Well, Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, is enraged. So he takes his army and he goes up north, raging through Israel, beating up Jews on the way. He gets up there. He rakes the Syrians over the coals. He captures their gods, which is only fair because Cambyses had captured the gods of Egypt prior to this. So now he captures their gods and takes them down south with him. And I read that and I thought, you know, poor little helpless gods. <laughs> poor little idols. You know, they just sit there on the shelf and don't really hurt anyone. <laughs> Isn't that just the way it is? I mean, who's looking out for the little gods? Who's going to take care of them? False gods are always the pawns of man until man becomes the pawn of his false god. The Bible tells us in Psalm 135.15, "...the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them." everyone who trusts in them. In other words, when people cling to their idols, they will become just like them, mute, blind, deaf, and dumb until they become pawns themselves of the enemy. Well, verse 10, picking up, says, "...his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress." The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north, and then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. (laughs) When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment." Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people, Daniel, so some violent Jews, will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. And then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand." But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, that's Israel, the beautiful land is always talking about Judea, with destruction in his hand. Now I know you all track that very well, so you know what's happening. Basically, it runs like this. The Syrians are stirred up, the Antiochus boys. So they got their army. They traipse back down through Israel to Egypt for more conflicts. The Egyptians under Ptolemy and his boys head back up to meet them in warfare. And then the Syrians go back down to meet the Egyptians. And the Egyptians go back up to meet the Syrians. And back and forth and back and forth and so on and so forth. It goes for 400 years. That's it. I told you it was simple. James says, James chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And the whole problem of war from day one in the world is humanity wants to get it themselves rather than go to the Lord. If we would stop and just say, Lord, you know what's best for us. Teach us to be content. Lord, you know what you have for us. Teach us to trust you in that. Lord, I seek you as... Jehovah Jireh, the provider of all that I need. But see, we don't go to the Lord, and so wars erupt time and time again. Now you might say, okay, but war's gone on since sin entered the world. Why is it so significant here in Daniel 11? And again, because the fighting centers in Israel. They're caught in the middle of the melee, the the international intrigue. They always are, aren't they? Jerusalem becomes a cup of trembling for all the nations round about. And the battles fought, even in these 400 years, back and forth and back and forth, much of it took place in a large basin there in Israel known as Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. It's a great valley for having war. And when we go to Israel this March, those of you who are going, we'll we'll have some war there. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll do that. But verse 14 says, and note this, many will rise up. So what that's referring to there uh, is other nations are going to get involved in all of this warring and all of this melee. Philip V uh, with Greece, he gets involved. Ultimately, Israel itself gets caught up in the struggle. And unfortunately, if you're an historian, you can follow this stuff and check it out. Israel typically chose the wrong side and so got even more beat up in all of these battles. Finally, Antiochus the Great comes along He patterned himself after Alexander the Great. He wanted to be a unifier of all of the four factions that split off after Alexander. And so Antiochus the Great stands up. He has a decisive victory over Egypt, but many in Israel are killed or suffer greatly. Verse 17 says, "...he," speaking of Antiochus the Great, "...will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect." And he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. (laughs) But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Antiochus the Great, what he does is offer a shady deal to Ptolemy Epiphanes down in Egypt. And again, no quiz, so don't worry about this. But there's another, another arranged marriage of state. So up in the north, Antiochus the Great says to Ptolemy Epiphanes, he says, look, I, 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 let's, let's, let's have peace. I'm going to send you my daughter. Now his daughter was a stunner. His daughter was beautiful. In fact, she's called here the Daughter of Women, the idea being she is a a drop-dead gorgeous. She's a knockout. And she's got a familiar name, Cleopatra. Now, this Cleopatra is not the same Cleopatra that we know famously. This Cleopatra actually came along about a century earlier, so this Cleopatra in the Scriptures is great-great-great-grandma, to the, the eventual Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, you know, the, that whole story. So this Cleopatra is a, a forebear to the one that would come along later. But she's still absolutely beautiful. And so Antiochus ships Cleo down to Egypt. And he says, I want you to marry Ptolemy's son. Wait for him to grow up because he was just a toddler at the time. Yeah, I know. Ooh. Uh, Cleopatra was also named Robin. Cradle. Cradle. Uh, <laughs> So he sends he sends Cleopatra down, she goes down, but the whole point, and the reason why the scriptures tell us here, um, how does it say it, it says she will ruin it. He sends his daughter to ruin this peace treaty. What does that mean? It means he sent her to be a spy. And that's what he wanted. Antiochus the Great sends his daughter down to be a spy among the Ptolemies. She refuses to do it. She actually falls in love with with little Ptolemy and uh, refuses to be her father's spy. It's a twisted world in which we live, my friends. So, in the meantime, Antiochus the Great turns his anger from Egypt toward the coastlands, that's Greece, and decides he's going to fight against Greece. But a new kingdom coming on the scene stops him. The new kingdom is Rome. He returns to his own land and he dies a year later in 188 B.C. while plundering a temple of the Elamites. So all of a sudden, we've just gone across almost 400 years and like I told you, it was just battle after battle after fighting and infighting and backbiting and just the ways of man. Verse 20. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor Through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. The year is 187 B.C. The next Syrian king rose up. His name was Seleucus Philippator. He wasn't a hater of Philip. It's just Philippator. it's one word. He saw the opportunity to exact taxes where it says one will arise, he will send an oppressor, (laughs) tax man, It's the word for the tax collector. I think that's good. I think we ought to change the IRS to the oppression agency. And we just call it what it is, right? Okay. So he sends an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. The jewel of his kingdom is the Jewish temple. Because even at that time, the second temple there in Jerusalem was a jewel. It was beautiful. It still had some of the original wealth that had been brought back into it brought back out of Babylon and so he wants to highly tax the Jewish temple. In fact he planned to pillage it. But it says within a few days he will be shattered though not in anger nor in battle. He planned to pillage it but guess what happened? History tells us, and I believe this was in Josephus, that The ambassador from Seleucus that he went down to pillage and plunder the Jewish temple had a vision of an angel who warned him to turn around and go home. So he did. It's always a good idea. When you get a warning from an angel, listen to him. Okay? He didn't die of anger or in battle. But this man, this uh, Seleucus Philippator, he was assassinated by his brother. His brother was a political ladder climbing jerk. All of this sets the stage now for two primary persons of interest through the rest of chapter eleven, especially as it relates to Israel. I wanted to move quickly through that stuff. There's again you can you can sit and spend more time Studying through all of those verses. And people have done this. I don't have the patience for it, but people have looked at history and looked at each verse line by line and found it to be historically absolutely perfect in accuracy. So now we get down to this next guy. Public enemy number 1. Verses 21-35 through focus on this one. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. Verses 9 through 12 and 23 through 25. And as far as Israel was concerned, from 175 down to 163, public enemy number one, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, who we talked about back in Daniel chapter 8. 175 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene, verse 21 picks up his story, and tells us in his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but. He will come in a time of tranquility and he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. A couple of interesting words there in the Hebrew are used, despicable. The word is baza in Hebrew. Baza means vile, contemptible. This Antiochus Epiphanes was an absolutely vile character, but he rose to power Shouldn't have been his. He was not the next heir to the throne there in Syria. But he rose by intrigue. And that's the other word you might want to note there. Intrigue. The, Greek, the, the Hebrew word for intrigue is halak lakot. And halak lakot is interesting. It literally means flattery. Smooth talk. Antiochus Epiphanes had a silver tongue. You could call him the velvet steamroller. You know, he knew how to speak the right words. He knew how to say what people wanted to hear. He rose up in a time of relative peace in his country. He began to speak. People began to listen. They began to get. Now, I know you've never seen anything like that happen. <laughs> but Antiochus had the ability to woo people with his words. He was a flatterer. Romans 16, verse 18 says, For such men are are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was such a man. Jude tells us in verse 16 these ungodly are grumblers finding fault following after their own lust they speak arrogantly flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage beware the flatterer beware those who come to you with smooth speech beware the man or the woman who comes along and they just they just don't ever have a bad thing to say and you start to notice they say everything that you long to hear dangerous people and they usually have a trick up their sleeve they're flattering for a reason I love that Paul says first Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 5 we never came with flattering speech as you know nor with a pretext for greed God is our witness Paul said in first Thessalonians 2 verse 8 we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us Give me a servant of the Lord over a flatterer any day. I tell you what, the person that I long to have as friend, enjoy having as friend, is the one who genuinely cares. And cares enough about me, not just to flatter me, but also to tell me the truth when I need to hear it. Antiochus Epiphanes, silver tongued Antiochus, seduces, he wins over the people, and they accept him ultimately as their rightful king, though he is not. Verse 22 tells us the overflowing forces will be flooded away before Him and shattered, and also the Prince of the Covenant. By flattery and smooth talk and politics, Antiochus Epiphany literally floods away the overflowing forces. He undermined the greater army of the Egyptian Ptolemies. He knew how to play the political game. He also brought about sweeping changes to Jewish life. How did he do that in such a short amount of time? Gang, Antiochus Epiphanes, we haven't talked about this before, he, he began to change the face of Israel. Not by war, and not by the abomination of desolation. He'll do that. But this is a lead up to that, to prepare the people to even allow that kind of thing to take place. How did he do it? By cultural relativity. Now pay close attention to this. Antiochus Epiphanes is what you could call a Hellenizer. What do you mean? He brought the Greek world. He brought the Greek message. He came to the Jewish people and said, you got to keep up with the times. You're back here speaking Hebrew. The rest of the world speaks Greek. You're back here holding to your Jewish traditions while the rest of the world is moving on. Zeus, Zeus, he's our man. And he brings all of this new idea and the new culture. And he's up to date. And of course, the young people among the Jews are going, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm kind of tired of the old traditions anyway. And by smooth talk, he begins to bring Greek culture in among the Hebrew people. They just wanted to keep in step with the times and he handed it to them. And that is so dangerous because that is, the, in my mind, that's the single most dangerous thing in the church today. And that is what's undermining the church today. Is this whole? We've talked many times about this whole cultural issue, trying to be like culture. We tell ourselves that we might reach culture. When the truth is, we just don't want to look different. And it's what Antiochus Epiphanes did at first, bring in the Greek culture. Now, this mentions the Prince of the Covenant. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the Prince of the Covenant. Who is the Prince of the Covenant? That is a high priest in Jerusalem by the name of Onias Third. Onias the Third was a godly, pious man high priest in Jerusalem, he was strongly opposed to the Hellenization of Israel. That is to all the Hebrew people chasing after these Greek ideals. He said, don't do that. He stood strong against it. And then Antiochus Epiphanes came along and said, this guy's going to be a problem. So he had him deposed as high priest. But he kept talking. He wouldn't shut up. He kept speaking out against the cultural changes until he was murdered by his brother Jason. And what was interesting is that the murder of Onias III, both Greeks and Jews, mourned the loss. And that should tell us something, because while the church chases after the world to look like the world, as the church loses, the world loses. As we lose our influence of being different, of being Jesus' disciples, of looking like Christ and not like the world, as that goes away, guess what? The world loses too. Because the hope of salvation becomes watered down. So Onias is killed. He was the prince of the covenant. Meanwhile, Antiochus continues his power grab, verse 23. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. And he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of his realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did. Nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. See, he's going to take from the rich and give to the poor. He's going to spread it all out. Again, we, we don't see this kind of thing these days. <laughs> I wonder if the NSA is listening in on, on, on this teaching right now. Just, uh, okay, so he, so he spreads the wealth around. He's using politics. He's using smooth talk. And it tells us then he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. Verse 25, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. This Antiochus is a snake and literally starts working through people down in Egypt to undermine the king of Egypt politically so that he can overcome what he wouldn't have been able to overcome militarily. Verse 26, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. In other words, his own food checkers poisoned him, the king of Egypt. His army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. And for all the history of it, understand the end always does come at the appointed time. The end cannot be stopped. It's coming. Because you see, God never misses an appointment. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. <laughs> That's where that came from, by the way. Wait for it. That came from Scripture. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. You know the appointed time is coming, Right? We, we get that it's coming. I had a conversation this morning with, with Ray. We were having breakfast together. And we were talking about the, the very fact that, you know, he asked me the question, why do you think at the beginning of the book of Revelation it says that all this will happen quickly? And that was 2,000 years ago. And I said, well, that's simple. When it starts to happen, it will happen quickly. The Bible is absolutely right. He wasn't saying that it's going to be done Two thousand years ago, he was saying when these things start, when this ball gets rolling, Revelation chapter one, it's going to roll very fast. When the tribulation opens up, the beginning of the seven years, I'll tell you what, the last seven years of my life have gone by like that. It's going to happen fast, gang, when it starts. The end is before us. We know it is. We are not blinded by the God of this world. Therefore, Peter says, Second Peter 3, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If we know the end is coming, if we know the appointed time cannot be changed, it is barreling toward us, then how should we live? In holiness and conduct. Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You see, you can't put back, push back the appointed time. Perhaps, though, we might be able to pray it forward a bit. But whatever the case, the appointed end is coming. Verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. So Antichus Epiphanes goes back up north, but he's got this hateful sense against the Holy Covenant, the Mosaic system of law. He's very anti-Semitic. says he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time he will return and come into the south. But this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. That is when he goes down against Egypt. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsook or forsake the holy covenant covenant. What's going on here? Antiochus goes back up to the north after having put down the king of the south. He stops off, causes trouble in Israel, goes back up north. Well then he comes down determined to do away with Egypt once and for all. But when he comes down and begins to set up fighting against Egypt, ships of Katim, coming out of Greece sail across and tell him you got to stop. The ships of Katim are Rome. Rome comes up against him. Rome is gaining might and Antiochus Epiphanes knows that and they say you got to stop and stop now And they drew a line in the sand literally. Antiochus Epiphanes is standing there as they're having this this powwow him with the Romans and he says, look I want to take I want to ta- I fight Egypt just just you guys just stay back don't help them and, and I'll take care of this and they said no they are our allies we're not going to allow it. you have a choice. you either fight Egypt with us, or you turn around and you go back to your country where you came from. Those are your choices. And Antiochus said, well, give me some time to think about it. And they right then drew a line in the sand, a big circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And they said, you make the decision before you step out of that circle. Did you hear about the guy, by the way? He's driving his car. Brand new, beautiful Ferrari down the road bright red, he's proud of it, he's, he's, he's the greatest, he's driving down, and all of a sudden he comes into a shady part of town, and some thugs come out of nowhere, and they've got chains, and they've got bars, and they stop him, and they drag him out of the car, and they put him on the side of the road, and they put a big circle around him in the dirt there, and they say, you step out of that circle, and we will kill you, and they go to work on his car, and they just beat it to smithereens until there's really nothing left to spread all over the street, they turn around, and the guy is standing there laughing, so well, what's the deal? We just destroyed your new car. He goes, yeah, but while you were doing that, I stepped out of the circle three times. <laughs> so Antiochus made his decision. <laughs> totally, yeah. He made his decision. And he went back to his country because he, he knew that Rome along with Egypt would wipe him out. But he is now absolutely enraged. He is ticked off. And on his way back north, he goes through Israel. And he says, that's it, I have had it. Now remember this game. The battle is not against flesh and blood. Satan has an agenda here. Antiochus was not just a loose cannon. He was a tool of the enemy, Satan. And so as he's going back up through Israel, Satan, the great anti-Semite, says, now attack these people. At least you'll get something for your efforts. And Antiochus does. And it's a bloodbath. The people of God are always a threat against the agenda of Satan. Continuing on, verse 31. Forces from Him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary, the temple, fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation which we talked about back in chapter 8, the abomination of desolation. In that one day, it's estimated anywhere from 80 to 100,000 Jews were massacred in Jerusalem on that day. Some estimate as many, as many as a million more Jews were slaughtered in Antiochus Epiphanes' bloody anti-Semitic rampage. And this is why the Bible describes him as a vile, despicable man. It's why the Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes. Remember, it means madman. Antichus Epiphanes means, you know, like God. And they said, no, you're not Epiphanes, you're Epimenes, you're nuts. And he took his place in history among the ranks of the Hamans and the Neros and the Hitlers, those world rulers who are set against the people of God. And verse 32 says, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength <laughs> and take action. And you know their names, the Maccabee brothers. Led by Judas Mac- Maccabeus, Maccabeus meaning the hammerer. And they led guerrilla warfare. They fought back. They drove back. Antiochus is a- of forces. And with a ye- within a year, he's driven out. And within a year of him being driven out, he dies of a wasting disease. And that is the end of Antiochus' epiphanies. Verse 33 continues and says, Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword, and by flame, and by captivity, and by plunder for many days. Anyone know how many days this would continue? If you go back to Daniel 8, verse 14, it tells you. Okay? 2,300 mornings and evenings. Now, if that's dealing with the morning and evening sacrifice, then we're talking about 1,150 days. Or 2,300 days, depending on how you look at it. And again, that's something we covered previously. But for that amount of time, there was this terrible, ter- mini-tribulation for the Jews there in Judea. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. That is, those would join up with the Maccabee brothers and those in Israel fighting back, but they were hypocritically joining up. They just did it for their own purposes. Some of those who have insight will fall in order, listen, to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Israel in the purging. The Maccabee brothers... Fought back, And in those waning days before the first coming of Jesus Christ, a faithful, gutsy Jewish people knew what we need to remember today. Those who were faithful, those who were trusting, knew one very simple truth. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? Now let me ask you a quick question here before we continue on. How many of you truly desire to be made righteous? Just a show of hands. You really want to be righteous. You know? If you don't, we have someone in the back who's marking it down. But just okay. <laughs> Understanding your desire to be made righteous, purging, refinement, and purification are part of the deal. If you want to be righteous, if you just want to be a slug, don't worry about it. But if you want to be righteous, the Bible tells us indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. It's a guarantee. It's not an if, it's a win. James chapter one, verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, there it is again, faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we have seen the Jewish people in a purging, really for two thousand years. But in this season, prior to the coming of Christ the first time, the Jewish people would be purged and they would be refined and they would be purified and there would be a small number of them who were really, really ready for Messiah when He came. Israel at large rejected Jesus. But don't ever forget the first century church was 100% Jewish in its origins, in its beginning. Because some had been purged and prepared for Jesus' arrival. Will that happen to us? It may. It may very well. No, I don't believe we're going to go through the tribulation, but I do believe before the coming of Jesus and perhaps before the rapture of the church, we may see harder times. I still cling to the hope that before I pull my car into the garage tonight, we're going to go home. But I'm also prepared that there may be some purging that takes place. How will we be ready for it? Faith.